My uh, intention this morning was to speak on a particular topic and I took some time to reflect upon it and made some notes and even put them in a very nice little cardboard file which when I arrived here turns out to still be sitting on my desk. And it's an interesting uh, experience insofar as what I wanted to speak about and wish to speak about is the deepening of practice. I think it's probably a familiar experience for you all. And uh, whether you've been here now practicing for one or two weeks or those of you who've just arrived in the last few days. And to those of you, welcome, particularly. And uh, for the rest of you, it's great that you're still here. Um, But with regard to that experience of having somewhat prepared for a circumstance we're about to encounter, and then finding that somehow our preparations either aren't of much use to us or haven't really prepared us at all, that's a little bit like meditation practice, isn't it? That moment where we actually meet experience as it unfolds is not one we can really prepare for. We sometimes come with our bag of tricks or tools or techniques into the experience to uh, calm the mind or by focusing or open the heart with some matter or understand it through some reflective inquiry or contemplation. Vipassana. And there's a place for all that preparation. There's a a value and a power in that. And yet there's also a place for a certain quality that emerges when we aren't relying so deeply on our preparation. We aren't relying so much upon what is familiar, what is known. And the process of deepening practice very much goes along with our willingness to be carried by the unfoldment of the practice rather than to be holding or directing or in any way controlling it. Allowing life to speak to us, to teach us through what is revealed. Learning from the places in which we react, get caught or hold in relationship to those experiences, in relationship to this life. This is really the challenge of practice and it's probably the case that uh, many of you will have noticed at times a certain inclination or urge towards finding the way that it works and sort of just settling in there, getting a little comfortable with the process. And often in the middle of a retreat, as for many of you is the case, there can be a way in which the the initial bumps and turbulence and uh, struggles have settled somewhat and there's more a degree of flow or ease, brightness or clarity becomes more accessible. And there's a sort of sense of, ah oh, yes, that's right, that's what I was here for kind of some subtle arriving 
some subtle sense of, okay, yeah, well, that's quite nice. I'll take another one or two or three or whatever weeks of this. That'll be fine. And when we do that, there's a way in which something of the, the edge or the fire in Dharma practice, in our practice, can be lost. It's very easy to trade in the initial inspiration, passion and enthusiasm that we might feel for going deeper into our life. For a sense of just something quite sweet and nourishing and clearly wholesome. Abiding in a peaceful, calm, pleasant, unruffled condition. There's a real value and a deep healing that occurs in that abiding. And it's certainly not to dissuade any of you from exploring that territory. But there's something else, there's something more to be concerned with, to be interested in. And how how strong, how keen am I? We need to ask ourselves, how keen am I to really understand more deeply? To really see into the heart of life? Because only with some degree of ardour, it's a lovely word, ardour, it's a sort of sense of... Uh, uh, like a flame, really, I guess, isn't it? Something that burns within us, that's bright and maybe sometimes warm and sometimes hot, not always comfortable. But that sense of ardour that really is willing to take on the challenges and the sacrifices of practice wholeheartedly. To understand something. So do we notice, are there ways in which we start to become attracted to comfort? Khalil Gibran spoke of comfort. He said, we invite it into our house as a guest, but over time it becomes the master, if we're not conscious and clear about what that is. That's not to suggest we need to seek discomfort. There's plenty of it already going around. I'm sure you've noticed. But neither to seek comfort for its own sake. As a balance to times of particular intensity or challenge, it has its place. Finding some ease, taking a few moments in a comfortable chair or a cup of tea that we hadn't scheduled. There's sometimes an appropriate place for that. And yet sometimes... What's asked for, what's called for, is to be a little more ruthless with that urge that says, mm, that'll be nice, and say, actually, sure it would be nice, but I don't really need that right now. Very easily, the places where our practice can deepen, times when certain qualities of mind and heart are maturing, are places where we're also thrown into a little bit of doubt, or restlessness, or agitation, or craving. And the easy response to it is to just soothe it over with something sweet. A cup of tea with two or three spoons of sugar is a 
one solution I notice myself sometimes favouring on a retreat, despite knowing that really the sugar's not good for me. I have a tendency towards low blood sugar and sugar is really a bad thing. But sometimes the, the pull of it is strong. And yet to be able to just stop and feel that pull. It's like this is the pull of our conditioning. This is the pull that's saying at some level, not directly or literally or else we'd perhaps see it more clearly, this is the pull that's saying stay asleep. It's comfortable. It's cosy. It's warm. Even though we know actually it's deeply painful to be unconscious, to be asleep. But something pulls, it says, no, just something comfortable, that's what you need, something soft, something warm. There are times and there are places when actually what we need to say is, no, I don't need that. I don't need that. It would be nice to take a nap, but actually I'm not tired. If we're tired, if we didn't sleep last night because we were meditating till three in the morning or because there was something going on in the heart or the mind that meant our sleep was disrupted and you need a nap in the afternoon. Fine, that can be appropriate. And there can be times when we've slept six or seven or eight solid hours and that's actually all we need. And in practice, often we need a little less than we think we do. That when that urge to take the nap that we do every day that seems to make for a really nice sitting at 2.30... Because we're full of energy and we're bright and the body's rested and it's quite lovely. To take the risk that if we don't have the nap, maybe we will be a little drowsy at 2.30. Maybe it won't be quite so pleasurable. But there's something in the willingness to go a little closer to the edge that brings a response from life. It brings a response in practice. That clarifies, that opens, that deepens the pathway we move through. And so at points in a retreat, and certainly in the middle phase of a retreat, it's useful to reflect upon, how am I using my time? To really remember that although it may seem, if you're here for a month, having been here two weeks, there's still two weeks to go, and it's like there's forever in a certain way, moment by moment, there's an infinite number of them, and there's certainly no need to get worried about it running out. Not advocating that. And yet to know that these days are relentlessly passing. It's a phrase from a reflection used in one Zen tradition. These days are relentlessly passing. How well am I using my time? So it's not to be thinking about the future, born of that, but to really, how well am I using now? And uh, one response that one of my teachers would sometimes give to the question of how do I deepen my practice? This is a question, I think, dear to the heart of all practitioners. How do I deepen my practice? What will enable that to happen? We think about particular techniques or ways of doing it differently or better. And yet the response that this teacher would give, I rather liked. He would say, eat less, sleep less, Sit more. Hmm. It's not always what we were looking for in terms of a suggestion. Now that's not meaning starve yourself of food or sleep. And sit more doesn't mean you have to spend, you know, 
23 of 24 hours a day on a cushion. It's like, look and see. Am I taking more in than I need by the way of food? I'm not suggesting fasting at all. That's usually not such a good idea. But moderation, which is often harder than abstinence. Just to see. If you're drowsy after lunch, regularly, still, eat a bit less for lunch. If you're hungry in the afternoon, that's okay. See what that's like. There'll be plenty of food at 5.30. And when I say something like that, I'm not making this as an injunction that therefore all of you should now take two spoonfuls of rice and sort of not even put any salt on it. And sort of, it's not like an ascetic practice for its own sake. But it's more like what happens in your being, what happens in your heart if you contemplate that possibility. Or the thought of, okay, I'm usually quite tired by this time at night, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, whenever you go to bed, 9 o'clock. And just saying, okay, normally that's what I'm tired, but tonight or one night, I'll go for a walk at that time and then I'll come and sit once more and see what happens. And if I fall asleep on my cushion, so be it. But what happens, what I find in that asking of that question and posing that possibility is that there's some, it's sort of, it fuels or it fans the spark <coughs> or the flame of that ardour, of that sense of yes. I can go beyond. Not in a sense of me and self and it's going to be me and I'm going to be really great for doing this, but more that sense of possibility, of potentiality that is there in this practice to be discovered, to be understood. To be realized. I remember the first time I skipped a meal in my life was on a retreat. And the amount of worry and sweat and fear that it generated. Just the thought of it, not actually even doing it, just the thought of doing it. And in fact, I'm not sure I actually even skipped the meal. I just thought about doing it. But at some point along the line, I did actually skip the meal. And just see, well, what's that like? Wow. It's kind of interesting to survive. Because some part of the being doesn't know that I'm not going to survive this. Sorry, doesn't know that I am going to survive it. Thinks I maybe aren't. It's like food and sleep are two of the areas we have some of the greatest amount of attachment. And yet, because most of us, I don't know if this applies to you all, it maybe doesn't, but for many, certainly in the West, we're remarkably fortunate in that for the most part we're able to get plenty of both. Now sleep's not easy for some people and food's not easy for people too, I understand that. But for the most part, most of us can get plenty of both. And it's only when we are in a situation where we can't because the situation is such that we're not sleeping so well, or the circumstances are such that either we can't or we choose not to eat so much, that we feel how strongly the sense of self is supported and attached to, supported by and attached to the consuming of food and sleep. And I say consuming in that way because it's like that's a particular mechanism. It's not when we're using it wholesomely and appropriately. 
And so we only see that attachment when it, when it's threatened. We only see how strongly food impacts us. You know, if the meal is good and what we like and plenty of it, how happy am I? If the food isn't what I like, or there isn't enough of it, how desolate that can be. Not always, of course. Sometimes it's just, oh, okay, this is what there is. And there's a remarkable freedom in that. A simple, ordinary freedom without any great bells and whistles or flashing lights. And just, ah, this is what there is. And the willingness to actually voluntarily step into that territory. is immensely powerful. To really be committed to what we're here for. That if there's drowsiness, really working directly with it. To stand up or to stretch the arms above the head or to take off the jumper and the blanket and the Things that keep one cosy. It's really hard to be drowsy when you're cold. I know this isn't an attractive proposition. I'm not suggesting anyone catch pneumonia over this. Really, please don't do that. But there's a line where we're comfortably warm and drowsy. And when we're slightly less than warm, drowsiness goes. And is there a willingness just to explore with these things? Again, I'm not suggesting that's what you need to do. But is there a willingness to explore? There's an incredibly inspiring story of um, a Korean Zen master, Kusan, Master Kusan, who was uh, a teacher of Martin Batchelor, one of the teachers here at Gaia House, a good friend. And um, Master Kusan once was intending to practice. He had a week for some meditation. And he was intending to dedicate this practice to the well-being of a dear friend who was dying. And as he sat down to practice, having this week, he found himself drowsy and nodding off and seemed nothing he could do would keep him awake. And yet he was so strongly committed to this practice, not just for himself, but for his friend, that he made the resolution, I'm going to stand on tiptoes for a whole week so as not to fall asleep. And he did. It's kind of like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Again, I'm not suggesting you stand on tiptoes for even an hour which I suspect would be a pretty remarkable feat in itself, let alone a week. But there's something inspiring in saying, well, yes. Or the stories of the old Tibetan masters who would sit cross-legged at the edge of a precipice, knowing that if they fell asleep and tumbled forward, they weren't just going to bump their head. They were going to tumble. And I really suggest you don't do that. But isn't there something just delightful to even contemplate that human beings would do this? Not stupid ones, wise ones would do this. It sounds perhaps a little foolish. It's like they're, it's speaking of a love of something. A commitment to something. A wholeheartedness of giving one's life to practice. And not practice not being some distant thing, giving one's life to one's life, that means. Because what is practice but our life? 
What are we doing but waking up into our life? If we're not doing that, that's not really practice. I'm sometimes a little cautious when I talk about this thing. Because there are occasions when one wonders if one's message has been heard correctly. There's a, uh, a story from the teachings of the Buddha, which is a little similar, and not so much, where the Buddha spoke about how the body was not something to be attracted to, not something to be um, attached to, and that, in fact, for the people he was speaking to, there tended to be a lot of sort of uh, elevation of the beautifulness of the body and the loveliness and the um, desirableness of the body. And in the West, we're quite different. We often have a lot more stuff and negativity about our bodies. But on this occasion, the Buddha was speaking to people who had a very different psychological conditioning. Um, and he spoke about understanding the sort of the, the impureness of the body in a way, which, again, can sometimes be misunderstood how he talked about it. He was teaching about the fact that it's made up of lots of different pieces rather than that they are somehow in themselves bad or um, unwholesome. Not that kind of impurity, but more the impurity that's the opposite of pure tomato sauce, made purely with tomatoes, not with other things. That sense of impurity, as in lots of different things rather than one thing. And when you get out all the different things that we think of this body as, maybe we think of it as nice or not, but only when we think about all the bits that are inside it do we realise, hmm, it's not that attractive. It's not like I really want to spend that much time sort of, you know, fascinating myself with it. But after he gave this rather powerful talk, um, apparently a hundred bhikkhus committed suicide. And uh, this was relatively early in his teaching um, career. And uh, one suspects that wasn't his intention. In fact, he was quite clear that was not his intention. So sometimes there's an element of caution um, in speaking about... uh, practices which uh, can be challenging to us. And that wasn't really my intention to speak about that one. Um, but it came to mind because one time a few years ago where I was speaking on this theme of, uh, of ardour, of deepening practice, the next day there was a yogi who was doing standing meditation on the lawn at the work period. Oh, that's keen. Great. Someone got out during the work period doing standing meditation. Didn't move. And we had the sitting at 9.30 in here and the end of it, the yogi was still out there, hadn't moved. I thought, wow, that's commitment. Um, and uh, at the beginning of lunchtime, it was more like, oh my gosh, he's still there. And I was thinking, well, actually, I don't think I've stood anywhere for longer than about that long. I, I noticed I started to get worried. And eventually I just went, and uh, it was about seven hours later, at the end of lunchtime. I went and just sort of checked. I said, you okay? He said, yeah. I said, you know, you don't have to stay here if it's not happening by itself and uh, left him to it. And about 20 minutes later, he was seen to uh, throw himself laughing, well, either fall over or throw himself onto the grass laughing um, somewhat uh, enthusiastically. And uh, it had been a very interesting experience for him. And yet there was some way in which what had happened, I think, was not that it wasn't a beneficial process, that there'd been some taking on of making that process happen a bit beyond its natural life. And in terms of standing with that commitment to just stay there. So, so what I mean to point out by that is that to not set up an idea of what you're trying to achieve in that way, 
to not say, oh, now I'm going to stay here for this long. Maybe if you're a Zen master. But um, more like, see, well, just how long could I stay here? Sometimes to see, well, what is it that makes me get up? Why do I need to get up? Sometimes it's due to simple physical pain. And um, it may be that it feels like that's enough pressure for the body and that we know that it's not so skillful for our body to stay in a posture. For others, we might know that actually staying in the posture is just going to be uncomfortable, even painful, but it's not going to do any harm because we've explored that and we might choose to stay in that posture. Or we might say, well, I'll just stay here, but I'll just straighten my leg out if it hurts or I'll bend my back, but I'll just stay here and see what it's like. There's as many different ways of doing this as there are individuals. There's no formula here. But it's more like, well, what would happen if the sitting didn't end? What would happen if you were just going to be here until lunchtime? And the truth is, frankly, we really don't know what would happen if. And that's part of what's powerful. That's part of where the practice actually deepens, is in that space where we don't know, where we aren't in control, and yet where we're willing to be open to what happens where we're willing to take a risk that it might be scary or uncomfortable. Because the risk that we're taking is worthy in relationship to our aspiration. So you may choose to sit early or late in the day. And if that's the case, and what's stopping you, or if your interest is that, and what's stopping you is the thought of being drowsy at some other time, so what? So if you stay up late tonight and you're drowsy tomorrow morning, does it matter? Drowsiness. You can be with that, or you can have a nap, if you need one. It's like the sense of the form that we have. I just do the sitting at 6.45 till 7.30, 9.30 till 10.15. We can just kind of plug into that and just go along. Sometimes that's enough, and sometimes we need a little more. Some of you I know have just arrived two days ago. Is that today, Wednesday? Yeah, so some of you have just arrived yesterday, in fact. And maybe that doesn't apply in quite the same way. And yet, at the same time, right from the beginning, just being aware of what is appropriate in that regard. How much to engage? How much to extend yourself? Without efforting, without pushing yourself towards some fixed goal that you're somehow identifying as being what's right or what's enough or what will enable you to feel okay about yourself. Efforting tends to happen in an unskillful way when there's some identification with having produced a result or with having failed to produce a result. Some sense of success, personally, me, I did it, or failure, me, I messed it up. Rather than a sense of, well, what's possible here? With that framing like that, it doesn't need to become efforting because it's about orienting in a direction to see, well, okay, maybe on the first day of practice, six or seven sittings or whatever is on the schedule is plenty. And just getting here and staying here and being awake for some of it is pretty good. And that can be true. But after two weeks, for most people, that's not the case. 
And yet rather than saying, okay, so I should be doing 10 sittings, it's like, what's possible for you? And look at where you take a holiday. Mostly it happens to everybody. I'm quite familiar with my own places of holiday on a retreat, and perhaps you are too. Those places where it's not that we've been pulled away unconsciously or unintentionally, but where we've actually decided, well, that's enough for now. I've been practicing pretty hard. I think I'll just uh, switch it off for a little while. I'll space out. I'll hang out with a book in a way that isn't really engaging. It's just entertaining my mind in a sort of slightly more simplified mode of uh, entertainment and distraction. Noticing where you do that. The sense of leakage. It's like part of what a retreat is, it's creating a container. The, the word that Tibetans use for retreat, um, which I can't actually remember in this moment, translates essentially as boundary. It's like placing a boundary around. Now why do we place a boundary around something? It sounds like that's counter to what we're interested in. Actually, Dharma practice is about freedom. It's about the dissolution, the penetration and the dissolution of boundaries. About seeing the emptiness of all that appears to limit. And yet why would we place a boundary around? It's like a boundary prevents leakage. And what happens when we, we take those moments of, oh, well, actually, I think I'll just have a break for now, is some of the, the fire, some of the passion kind of leaks out. And the sense of the energy that builds when we don't do it, when we continue, when we sustain, when we make the steady, conscious effort again and again to just keep coming back, to carry this practice through the work period, the meal time, the rest time, the lying in bed time, the brushing my teeth time, the going to the bathroom time, the walking after lunch time, to really carry the practice through all of those places. When we make that effort, when we make that commitment, it doesn't mean the mind doesn't still get pulled away at times. But that it's like we're really supporting the commitment, and there's a there's a quickening that happens. There's a a ripening. There's a maturing that happens in the heart, and the mind, and the consciousness through that willingness to stay within the boundary. There might be a boundary in space. But it's more to do with the boundary of intention. Being clear what our intention is here. Waking up is not something you do. But nor is it something that happens by accident, as is sometimes suggested. It's not something you do or make happen. And nor is it something that occurs randomly or by accident.
So where does that leave us? Where does that leave practice? Can't do it. Nor can we just sit back and wait for it to happen to us. It's a little bit like simply being present. We can't do that either. But nor does it happen by accident. It very much comes down to the way we're engaging with intention. The way we're using it skillfully to orient heart and mind towards that which we understand to be wholesome and beneficial. Towards, at times, deepening in samadhi, samatha, concentration, stilling and focusing the mind. At times, orienting, seeing when we need to, towards the developing of loving-kindness or compassion, open-hearted care and responsiveness to experience. Seeing that at times we need to develop because we recognize there's an imbalance. Or directing the intention truly, clearly towards understanding, insight, vipassana, the penetration of the nature of things with understanding. And being clear that we're doing this. Not that we're making it happen, but that what we're doing is we're turning in that direction. And we're employing the tools that we've learned, that we've developed in that service, in that direction. And staying with that. Through the turbulence, through the dry periods. Through whatever comes. How do we do that? How can we do that? It seems to require an immense courage and an immense love and a depth of trust in what is possible. We can only do this if we care for ourselves and other beings, all beings. One can't do this without that. We can only do this if we're willing to go to where it's a bit scary, frightening or unknown at times. If we have that courage. And perhaps that courage comes from the deeper fear that we might recognize, the, the valid, the genuine fear of living our life asleep, of not waking from the dream of entanglement, of bondage, of separation, of not seeing what is true. The shining mirror of truth, of reality. Spinoza once said, All truly noble human endeavours are as rare as they are difficult. It's a rare thing to do wholeheartedly that which you are doing here. It's a rare thing. The Buddha spoke of how one is fortunate and it's not so common to even be born a human being. And born a human being, it is fortunate and not so common to be healthy and have one's material needs 
and having health and material needs to a reasonable degree taken or in a good condition to encounter the Dharma. And again, how it's not so common and so, is so fortunate having encountered the Dharma to have the inclination to practice it. And having the inclination to practice it, actually having the opportunity. And having the opportunity actually taking it and practicing. And in that regard, there's an immense good fortune that enables you to be here. A preciousness and a rarity of this occasion that has no guaranteed continuity or reoccurrence. It's rare. It's challenging. We know that. I don't need to say any more about that. It's not just challenging because we... (laughs) I don't need to and I probably will. Um, It's not just challenging because we encounter a body that's uncomfortable, painful at times, and a mind that's resistant, that's struggling, that's at times filled with restlessness and agitation, at other times with dullness and sloth, at other times with aversion and fear or grasping and attachment or doubt and confusion. All these things we experience... But it's, it's difficult even more so than all of that. Because that, for all its uncomfortableness, is still pretty much the known. It's still, for all its uncomfortableness, somehow familiar and reassuring. And we have a pretty well-established unconscious strategy for dealing with it, which is, you know, basically, get me out of here. But beyond all that, this practice is challenging because it asks us to go where our mind cannot accompany us. The mind that carries the story of me. The mind that tells me that I'm doing well or not. The mind that wants to know in order to feel safe. This mind cannot make the journey. although it can be transformed by that journey. And so it's, it's challenging to do this. Because that by which we think we're doing it, or through which we think we're doing it, our mind... challenge? Are you up for that challenge? Because for all that it's rare and difficult that human beings undertake this, it is noble, as Spinoza says. It is noble, ennobling to undertake this journey, ennobling to travel this path, to realize its fruit. What is this nobility? What is this nobility?
And the word can have a lot of associations for us, I think. Nobility in terms of a class system or an aristocracy might not sound like something we particularly want to aspire to. Nobility gets you onto the front page of glossy magazines. But there's something that's pointing to, about something that's greater. Nobility is pointing us to something that's greater than our small self, our small sense of me, our smaller, contracted experience of life. Nobility is pointing to something that is vast and unbounded. And that is the the expression of the fulfilling, the maturing, the ripening of the potential of life within all of us. And not all of us in a sort of generic sense, but actually in each one of us. In you, that means. Equally as in your neighbour, and their neighbour. To realise what is true. To understand that the nature of that which is, is unbound, is interconnected, is free and immediate always. For this understanding, it's worth the dedication, the the passion, the ardour of practice to bring light where there is darkness in our hearts and our minds and ultimately to carry that light into this world where there is so much darkness for the well-being and for the transformation of all that lives. And so may your practice deepen. May the caring and love, the courage and commitment that is asked of you be available to you.
for your own well-being and deepening and for the well-being of all that lives. Please continue to practice. So we'll just sit for a minute or two and then I'll uh, end the sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.